Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fank, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 6, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Late Monday night, we arrived home, finally, finally, from a three-week road trip through Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas. We even made it as far as um, Branton, Missouri, for an afternoon, anyway, just to see what was up there and what it was like, out of curiosity. We would like to thank all of the wonderful Christian Identity Brethren who took the time to see us along our way, and especially those wonderful people who hosted us on our trip. There were some people that we had wished we spent more time with, of course. That's practically all of them, right? And some people that we were disappointed we didn't get a chance to see this trip. Hopefully, um, we'll get to see them next year. We probably will stay home for um, at least most of the winter months now and get back to work. The protocol series is going to resume sooner or later. I'm um, probably sooner within the next several weeks. I don't know if it's going to be next week or not. I'm not sure yet. Tomorrow night, I'm going to do a program addressing the King James only heresy, which I haven't, which I have an outline for, but I haven't prepared yet. That's how I will be engaged for most of tomorrow. Tonight, it's a return to the epistles of Paul and Ephesians. This is part three of our presentation of Ephesians, and we've subtitled it "The Household of the Mystery." Many of the things which we shall, shall say here in our introduction to Ephesians chapter 3 this evening, we have already said in our other commentaries on Paul's epistles. This is because Paul was teaching covenant theology throughout his epistles, and we are merely following along. Covenant theology is the only true Christian theology. It's the only true theology, period. And for as long as we are expositing Paul's letters, we shall be repeating many of these things over and again, as often as Paul himself had made reference to them. But covenant theology is really just a belief in one simple concept, that Yahweh God actually keeps the promises which he had made to the forefathers of the Old Testament Israelites. Paul himself had said in Romans chapter 15 that it was the objective of Christ to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. With that acknowledgement, we have an obligation to study history and archaeology in order to find the correct identity of the Old Testament Israelites, because those promises only include them. Zechariah, the priest, prophesied of the purpose of the Messiah, as it is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
for he has visited and redeemed his people. In Zechariah's context, that statement limits redemption to the children of Israel, just as the prophets of the Old Testament had done, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we, meaning those same Israelites, should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Rather contrarily, Yahshua Christ himself had told the Jews of his time that you are of your father the devil and that you are not my sheep, while also proclaiming that he had come only for the lost sheep. So at least many of the Jews of his time could not possibly have been Old Testament Israelites. In Romans chapter 9, it is learned that those many were actually Edomites, and that fact is corroborated in the histories of Flavius Josephus. But speaking to the Ephesians here, in the first two chapters of this epistle, Paul of Tarsus had spoken of the election of Yahweh God as God himself had planned it from the beginning, just as we see attested by Zechariah in Luke, from before the foundation of the society. Then, in connection with that election, Paul spoke of preordination, alienation, and reconciliation. He spoke of the forgiveness of sin, of the attainment of an inheritance, and that all of these things were in accordance with the design of the will of God. As we have previously elucidated, all of these things were matters of prophecy and exclusively prophesied for the children of Israel, the Old Testament Israelites, in the books of the prophets. Then, at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul informs us that all of these things, as well as the body of Christ, are founded not merely upon the apostles, but upon the apostles and the prophets. Paul had also told the Ephesians in those first two chapters of this epistle that they had before had expectation in Christ, and that they were dead in their sins in which they had at one time walked. These things could only be said of the alienated Old Testament Israelites who were being reconciled to God in Christ. So Paul informs them that we, being dead in transgressions, are made alive with the anointed, or made alive with Christ. The Ephesians must have been among the Old Testament Israelites spoken of by the prophets in order to be members of the body of Christ founded upon the apostles and the prophets, as Paul said at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. 
Where in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul had referred to the Ephesians as the nations in the flesh. He was referring to them in much the same way as he had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he wrote, Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altars. And Paul was speaking of those who were sacrificing in pagan temples. And then he replied, But I say that the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. Saying that, Paul was informing the Corinthians that the nations, or Gentiles, which he was describing as pagans, were indeed the long-ago dispersed Old Testament Israelites. Israel after the flesh, a phrase which is better translated, Israel according to the flesh. Studying classical history, comparing Homer to the attestations of Josephus, one may certainly discover the fact that the Corinthians, being Dorian Greeks, were descended to the Israelites, as Paul had said of them in that same chapter, that all their fathers were baptized with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul of Tarsus had a ministry in Corinth because the Corinthians were descendants of the Old Testament Israelites. Paul had also taught covenant theology throughout his epistle to the Romans, and he had explained to the Romans in the opening chapter of that epistle that they had at one time had the truth of God and had turned it into a lie. That is precisely the story which the Old Testament relates concerning the Old Testament Israelites. And it is found throughout the historical books of Judges and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, where they were ultimately alienated for their idolatry. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites were chastised by Yahweh for worshiping the whole host of heaven, and get a load of the names of the Roman gods, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, wow. That that is why Paul described his ministry as a ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and elsewhere. Then in Romans chapter 4, Paul told his readers that for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not through Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they who are of the law be heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law works wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end. The promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, 
who is the father of us all, meaning Paul and the Romans. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be, meaning that those nations had to come from his loins. In this one statement by Paul, we see that Yahweh God would forgive Israel of their sins, and that the promises of God were immutable, that they were assured to those nations which had sprung from Abraham's seed, nations which did not exist when that promise was made. Paul referred to those nations of the promise as those things which be not, because they had not yet existed when the promise was made. Therefore, we are assured that by seed, Paul was referring to the little offspring of the promises to Abraham, according to the promise itself. The Judeans of Paul's time were keeping the law, at least in appearance, but they were not the heirs simply because they were under law. Many of them were not Israelites at all. The Old Testament Israelites had been scattered into many nations, fulfilling the promise to Abraham. And those were the nations of Paul's ministry of reconciliation. They were of the faith of Abraham, meaning that Abraham believed in them because he had believed the promises of God that his seed would become many nations. These nations, and these nations alone, are the so-called Gentiles of the New Testament in the King James Version. As Paul had taught covenant theology in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, he had also taught it in his epistle to the Galatians, where he said that now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And then he said, for if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And then Paul said, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And then finally, Paul said, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the position of sons. Like the Romans and the Corinthians, the Galatians, as well as these Ephesians, were at one time under the law. They had sinned. They were alienated from God. They were granted mercy and forgiven for their sins in Christ and were ultimately reconciled in the gospel. Only these reconciled people, the true descendants of the Old Testament Israelites, have any of the promises in Christ. This understanding is covenant theology, and it was indeed the understanding of the apostles' 
and the prophets. And Paul says that the body of Christ is built upon the apostles and the prophets. Let us look at Isaiah 66, 19, and the course of the ministry of Paul of Tarsus. In Isaiah, Yahweh God is speaking of the children of Israel who were taken into captivity by the Assyrians in the 7th and 8th centuries B.C. Now, many Israelites had departed from the main body of Israel long before that, and among them were the Corinthians and the Romans. But those people aren't even mentioned in Isaiah 66, 19. Most of those who remained in Israel were taken into Assyrian captivity, and the Galatians were among them. Speaking of these, Isaiah 66.10, speaking of these people taken into Assyrian captivity, Isaiah 66, I'm sorry, 66.19 says, and I, meaning Yahweh, will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, meaning the Genesis 10 nations, all of these nations which are about to be discussed or mentioned by Isaiah are Genesis 10 Adamic nations. Tutashish, pull, and lud that draws the bow. Tutubal, and Javan to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. The King James Version has Gentiles. It's the same word translated nations a little earlier in the verse. Now Tarshish was in Iberia, or Spain, and Paul desired to go there, as he expressed in Romans chapter 15, but he never quite made it. Others later brought Christianity to Spain in his place. The second place mentioned Isaiah, Pul, is ambiguous, and in Scripture, Pul stood as a name for Tiglath-Pileser, an Assyrian emperor who took many of the Israelites and resettled them in the north. So Pul is conjectured to be a segment of Assyria, a territory or region in Assyria, which would certainly make sense in a biblical context. Paul had indeed ministered in Pontus, in Paphlagonia, in Cappadocia, in northern Syria, and in Cilicia, places in the vicinities of the original resettlement of Israel under the Assyrians, Lud, in Isaiah 66:19, Bud is the biblical reference to the ancient Lydians, a Shemitic people of western Anatolia. And this city of the Ephesians, which Paul is writing this epistle to, was at one time a Lydian city. Other cities of Anatolia, such as Sardis, were cities of the Lydians. Sardis is mentioned in the messages to the seven churches in the Revelation. So we see that Paul was going to where 
Isaiah 66, 19, to where Yahweh said in that passage that he would send the Israelites of the captivity. The Etruscans of northern Italy were also descended from the Lydians, according to all of the Greek histories. And both the Romans and the Galatahi had also, who were all Israelites, the Romans and the Galatahi, had also lived in that land, the ancient land of the Etruscans in Paul's time. The people of Tubal also once dwelt along the southern coast of the Black Sea, in the regions which Paul had passed through and preached. The later, the later epistles of Peter were addressed to assemblies throughout these areas, namely Pontus and Cappadocia. The people of Javan are the Ionian Greeks, and Paul had most of his ministry in proximity to the areas of Athens in Greece and Ionia in Anatolia, where many of the dispersed Israelites had also settled. The Ionians had also settled in Marseille in southern France, and the Gauls were later found there as well. Israelites of the Assyrian deportations had gone and settled in in all of these places where Isaiah had said that they would. They showed up in all of those places within 200 years of the time that Isaiah said that the Israelites would be sent to these places. There was no doubt that Paul's ministry followed the dispersions of the Old Testament Israelites as they were outlined in the books of the prophets and as they could be followed in the classical histories. This is the message. This is the message which was persecuted by the Jews for nearly 300 years, for as long as the Jews could instigate the pagan Romans against Christianity. This is also one reason why a universalist form of Christianity, which was void of this message, rose up in its place. We know this is the message which was persecuted because we see that in Acts chapter 22, the Judeans listened to Paul until he mentioned the bringing of the gospel to far-off nations. And then suddenly, as Luke records it, they demanded that he be put to death. Why? If the Judeans oppose Christianity, why would they be so upset that Paul would take Christianity to far-off nations? Get rid of them. You, you want to be a Buddhist? Fine. Go live with the Hindus. Go live with the Indians. Go live with the Chinamen. I don't care if you want to be a Buddhist. Why did they care? 
Because according to the prophets of Yahweh God, the true children of Israel had been scattered in those far-off nations. But the Judeans had the pretense and appearance of being the people of the one true God, and they did not want to part with their exclusive claims, even if few of them were actually Israelites. A Christianity which identifies true Israel is anathema to the Jew. And the Jew no longer holds his contrived position as God's chosen people. But a universalist Christianity is tolerable to the Jew since it does not credibly challenge the stolen Jewish identity. So the covenant theology of Paul was persecuted and oppressed, and it was replaced with universalism in the early Christian centuries. As Christ had said in the Gospel, where it is recorded in Matthew chapter 23. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against man, for you neither go in yourselves, neither do you allow them that are entering to go in. As Paul had explained in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in his time, Satan, in the present tense, as Paul wrote, Satan was seated in the temple of Yahweh, pretending for himself to be a god. They also seek to divert the true children of Israel from hearing Yahweh their God. And with this, we shall proceed with Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause, I, Paul, captive of Yahshua Christ, on behalf of you of the nations. And we'll pause there. The Codex Beze interpolates the words am ambassador or am an apostle at the end of the verse. This is one of those epistles which Paul had written while he was under arrest in Rome which is verified at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, and which is why he describes himself as a captive here. Using the definite article with the word for nations, and this topic will come up after a few more verses, Paul means to refer to specific nations and not just any nations. That's a facet of the Greek language, which is usually overlooked in this aspect in the New Testament by denominational churches. Paul himself explains what nations they are, those specific nations which he discusses in Romans chapter 4, which are the nations of Abraham's seed. One can never read references to the Gentiles in Paul and take it outside of the context of Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul informs us exactly what Gentiles he was taking the gospel to. 
in Rome, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul again informs us that those Gentiles are indeed Israel, not spiritual Israel, Israel after the flesh, Israel according to the flesh. Verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you. The Greek word oikonomia is primarily the management of a family, according to the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon. Liddell and Scott also lists husbandry and thrift as alternate meanings of the word, and among others, Thayer adds stewardship, none of which fit the context here, although at times they may be appropriate where Paul uses the word elsewhere. While oikonomia can be interpreted as stewardship in particular contexts, the most literal meaning here is the most appropriate within the context of Scripture. As we have just outlined, the covenant theology being taught by Paul. The nations of Paul's ministry are the nations descended from Abraham's seed, and therefore they are also a family. So Paul describes his ministry as an oikonomia, which is the management of a family. Here the King James Version has dispensation for oikonomia. But Paul may have chosen any one of several other Greek words to clearly convey such a meaning. In fact, later in his chapter, Paul uses the word katoikeo in the sense of administration, while the, and, and that even that has the same root, oikos, or house. While the King James Version may be defensible from a purely literal viewpoint, is Paul really the steward of God's grace? That's the real question. Or was Paul a steward of God's household by bringing them the message of God's grace, which is the promise and the purpose of the gospel? Paul considered himself to be a steward of God's household, as he explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that upon him came the care of all the churches on a daily basis, since oikonomia describes the management of a family, and Israel is the family of the favor of Yahweh. Paul's task was the stewardship of the family of the favor of Yahweh, but he was not the steward of the favor itself. Paul had referred to the family of the faith in Galatians chapter 6, distinguishing them from all men. This word oikonomia appears in the Septuagint only twice, both times in Isaiah chapter 22, in verses 19 and 21. The corresponding Hebrew word is translated as government, in the King James Version, where it says from verse 20, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, 
and I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government. And in the Septuagint, that word is in Greek, oikonomia. And I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be, and this next couple of lines, this next couple of phrases, helps us to understand what the biblical oikonomia is. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Well, this prophecy is not of Paul. We nevertheless see how Paul understood the word oikonomia as it was used of one who is appointed to managing the household of God. Verse 3, seeing that by a revelation, the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading, you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed. The mystery isn't of Christ. The mystery is of the people of Christ. The mystery to which Paul refers has nothing to do with Yahshua Christ himself, but it has everything to do with the purpose of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 43, Yahweh had spoke of the children of Israel of the Assyrian captivity. And he said to them, and we will read only two verses, verse 2 and 19, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So the new thing that Yahweh was going to do was, according to Isaiah 43, watch over the children of Israel as they departed from the places to which the Assyrians had deported them. This mystery of which Paul speaks is this new thing which Yahweh said that he would do upon the earth in Isaiah. This describes the migrations of the children of Israel. And from around 700 B.C. onwards, we see wave after wave of tribes called Chimerians and Scythians and Sake, and later by the names Galatahi and Gauls and Germans, in addition to the distinct tribal names, whose migrations were described by the Greeks and Romans as they crossed from Asia into Europe. We have every reason to connect these historical events and the scripture. We have already discussed Isaiah 66, 19, where the prophet had spoken in reference to the tribes of already deported Israel, where he described where Yahweh their God, their God had planned to send them. Therefore, after Isaiah wrote his prophecy, the people who began to appear in these areas must have been those same children of Israel who Isaiah said would appear in those areas. There are other prophetic witnesses which testify to the same thing. 
And here I will quote one of my favorites. Micah chapter 4, verse 7, where through the prophet Yahweh had said of Israel, and I will make her, and Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. Now, if the children of Israel were cast far off and became a strong nation, as well as dispersed remnants along the way, then this certainly cannot have been fulfilled in Palestine. And the only people in history this could possibly describe are those Saxon Germanic peoples who migrated out of Asia and into Europe shortly after Israel was deported and the prophets had written these things. Hosea spoke in reference to the same thing in chapter 1 of his prophecy. where he wrote concerning the same Israelites being taken into captivity. And Hosea was also a contemporary of Isaiah. And he said, Yet the number of the children shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in a place where it was said unto them, You are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Paul cited this passage in Romans chapter 9 speaking of those same Romans chapter 4 nations of Abraham's seed to which he had his ministry of reconciliation. Hosea is describing that very reconciliation. The text of Romans 4, Romans 9, and 1 Corinthians 10, as well as Galatians 3 and 4, and the first three chapters of this epistle to the, Ephesian, to the Ephesians all reveal Paul's understanding of the mystery of the anointed, which is the identity of the Old Testament Israelites in his own time. We must not be deceived. The Germanic and related peoples are indeed the dispersed of Israel and Isaiah, who is second only to the Psalms, as the most often quoted scripture of the New Testament writers makes that perfectly clear. But the Romans and Dorians and Phoenicians represented earlier migrations of the same people. This is the fulfillment of those words which Yahweh spoke to David through Samuel the prophet in 2 Samuel 7.10, where he said, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Those words being spoken in Palestine, Palestine cannot be the appointed place. Rather, the journey to the appointed place is described in Isaiah 66, 19. Paul continues speaking, speaking of this mystery, and he says, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, 
as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit. This is one of the few times in the New Testament that the Greek word, genea, may properly be translated as generation in context where it appears in the plural, since the object of the statement is the sons of men, meaning the men of the Adamic race, as Paul had used the term in his other writings. In their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott define genea as a race, stock, family, a breed, a tribe, a nation, or, number two, a race, comma, generation, and number three, offspring. Even when the term is used in a context which would compel us to render it as generation rather than race, it is not proper to separate the meaning of the word from the concept of race, but rather to perceive it to be describing a generation of a particular race. That this mystery of which Paul speaks had not been made known to men aforetime is also a matter of the prophecy of Isaiah, where Yahweh asks to the prophet, Who is blind but my servant? In Isaiah chapter 42 we read, Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as Yahweh's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this, meaning Israel, but this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are, all of them, snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivers. For a spoil, and none saith, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil, and Israel to the robbers? Did not Yahweh, against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured upon him, meaning upon Israel, the fury of his anger and the strength of of battle. And it has set him on fire round about, yet he knew it not. And it burned him, yet he laid it not too hard. The restoration mentioned here does indeed come to Jacob in the form of Christ himself. The reference to prison houses is a reference to the nations to which the Israelites would be sent. And Christ came to, as Christ explains in Luke chapter 4, Christ himself came to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the Israelites hid in prison houses, and recovering of sight to the blind, 
who is blind, but my servant, to set at liberty them that are bruised, referring to those same children of Israel. This blindness was also a matter of prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 29, where Yahweh informs Israel that he has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers has he covered. Blindness is a consequence of disobedience, and therefore, in their period of punishment, the children of Israel forgot who they were. In Christ, Paul received a revelation which is recorded in Acts chapter 9, where he was appointed by Christ to bear his name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel, as the phrase is properly translated in the Christogenian New Testament. Through the scriptures, the Spirit led Paul to the discovery of those very same children of Israel. That's the mystery of the anointed. Until Acts chapter 10. According to the words of the Apostle Peter himself, as they are recorded in Acts chapter 15. The apostles had only brought the gospel to those of the circumcision. It is Peter's experience in the household of the Roman centurion Cornelius, to which he refers, where he says later on in Acts chapter 15, verse 7, that you know how that a good while ago God made a choice among us that the nations, or Gentiles, by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. But it is clear in Acts chapter 10 that Peter himself needed a revelation through the Spirit in order to agree to preach to Cornelius and his household. This also proves beyond doubt that the Ethiopian eunuch and the Samaritans of Acts chapters 8 and 9 were all circumcised Israelites. As Peter received his vision in Acts chapter 10, at first he resisted, where it says in verse 13, but Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Then Peter realized that the animals of the vision had really represented people. And for that reason, he said in verse 28 of the same chapter, But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. However, while this was the way that Peter interpreted it, what the word of God had actually said to Peter is in verse 15 of the chapter where it says that Yahweh told him what God has cleansed, that call not thou common. So the object of the vision was for Peter to announce the gospel to those men whom God had cleansed. Throughout the books of the prophets, the word of Yahweh says nothing about cleansing Gentiles. And everything about cleansing the children of Israel who were put off by God. For instance, it says in Jeremiah chapter 33 from verse 7, 
the word of Yahweh says, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Later, Peter must have come to understand this purpose, as in his first epistle, which was perhaps 25 years later. He said to his Christian readers, but you are a chosen generation. There's that word genea. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness, those prison houses in which they sat, as Christ explains in Luke 4.18. Who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, referring to the same revelation to which Paul refers here. Then, Peter makes a reference to the same prophecy of Hosea, which speaks of the reconciliation of Israel, and he says in verse 10 of that same epistle, of that same chapter of that same epistle, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. These things can only be spoken of, Old Testament Israelites. And in verse 6, Paul describes this mystery which is revealed, which also upholds our translation of verse 4, where we write not of the mystery of Christ, but of the mystery of the anointed, meaning the mystery of where the people of God are. And in verse 6 he says, those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ Yahshua through the good message. The phrase, Ainahi ta'ethne, is rendered here as those nations which are and it may have been rendered which nations are, or those nations that are. But the verb properly being an infinitive, and not, as the King James Version has it, a third-person subjunctive, it may have been rendered those nations being, or which nations being. There's a lot of translation choices. Now, it may indeed have been rendered the nations being joint heirs. However, something which is often overlooked in New Testament interpretation is that the use of the definite article indicates a reference to particular things and not merely to any things, as the phrase, the Gentiles, is generally misinterpreted. It refers to particular nations and not merely to any nations. As Joseph Sayer explains in his Greek-English lexicon, the definite article, and I quote, 
is used with the names of things not yet spoken of in order to show that definite things are referred to, to be distinguished from others of the same kind and easily to be known from the context. Similarly, the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon describes the use of the definite article to refer to outstanding members of a class in all of the promises of God. The nations descended from Abraham's seed would be outstanding members of a class. Here Paul refers to certain nations, which is evident with his use of the definite article and the accusative case, and not, as the King James translators seem to have supposed, to any non-Judeans whatsoever or any other nations in general. Thayer tells us that we must look to the context to see which definite nations Paul is referring to. And as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Galatians chapters 3 and 4, the nations to which he was sent are the nations which resulted from the promises made to the fathers. Those promises are found in places such as Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 35, and Genesis chapter 48. Whenever we translate a book, any book, we are often confronted with choices. So we can choose a way to translate a passage that reinforces the general context of the book. Or perhaps we can choose a way to translate a passage that is just as literally correct, but which disregards the general context of the book. When making our Christogenia New Testament translation, we strove to adhere to the first method, to the best of our ability, to translate Paul's words and the rest of the New Testament as well, so as to reflect the context of the biblical narrative as emphatically as possible within the confines of the meanings of the Greek words and phrases. Many people hear what Christian identity has to say, and they exclaim, oh, that's British Israel, as if that discredits our claims. British Israel has been discredited, and it has certainly merited its fate, but for many other reasons. But we will not be discredited because we are not teaching British Israel. Rather, we are teaching the same covenant theology found in Genesis chapter 17, 35, and 48, which Paul also taught in Romans chapters 4 and 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Galatians chapters 3 and 4, and in these first three chapters of this epistle to the Ephesians. Speaking of these particular nations, Paul then says, of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me. In accordance with the operation of his power. The gift which Paul was granted 
was the knowledge of the identity of the lost children of Israel so that he could fulfill his ministry of reconciliation as he himself had called it in his second epistle to the Corinthians. Paul was telling the lost children of Israel who they were. And by bringing them this knowledge, he was performing the function of the gospel to open the eyes of the blind, as Christ had described from Isaiah. And he says, to me, the least of all saints has been given a savor to announce the good message to the nations, the unsearchable riches of the anointed. Paul humbles himself, as he explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. However, Paul must have also understood the words of Christ in the gospel, where he said, As it is recorded in Matthew chapter 18, Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So each Christian should endeavor to humble himself, but true Christian humility is to subject oneself to the word of God. From Psalm 112. Praise ye Yahweh. Blessed is the man that fears Yahweh, that delights greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty upon earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. So it was with Abraham. Paul continues in verse 9. And to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery, which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, by whom all things are being established. Paul is not the steward of the mystery. Paul has already told us that the mystery has been revealed. There's no mystery to be steward of. The majority text adds the phrase, through Yahshua Christ, to the very end of the verse. That doesn't appear in any of the ancient manuscripts. We learned from the interlinear Greek New Testament authored by George Rickerberry, that the manuscripts of the 16th and 17th centuries edited by Stevens, or Stephanus, and Elzevir, the Dutch printer, were based on manuscripts that were first edited, which were based on manuscripts that were first edited by Erasmus, the humanist. Those manuscripts have koinonia here, which is fellowship, which is why we see fellowship in the King James Version here, rather than oikonomia. And since the King James translators employed the manuscript of Stephanus, we read fellowship here in the King James Version, instead of oikonomia, or the manuscript of the household as the Christian New Testament has it. Now, we learned that from George Rickerberry's interlinear New Testament because George Rickerberry did not use 
the ancient Greek manuscripts in his compilation of a New Testament text for his interlinear. Berry, while he did a, a, a decent job, Berry had used the manuscripts of the modern textual editors, Stephanus, Elzebur, Westcott and Hort, and, and all of those later textual critics. The Christogenian New Testament does not employ any of those. We have used the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, and in that followed the readings of all of the ancient witnesses which precede the 7th century AD. So we only used manuscripts for our translation from the first six centuries of the Christian era. We did that for a reason. We did that because the Romish church really didn't begin to consolidate power until the time of Pope Gregory, the so-called great, in the 7th century. And we esteem that Roman Catholicism did not have a lot of power over or influence over the manuscripts themselves until the beginning of that period. And understanding the history of the manuscripts would probably show that we are right or correct in that regard. The Nestle Land Novum Testamentum Greca does not generally consider the readings of such late manuscript editors, and it attests that the manuscripts of the majority text don't have koinonia or fellowship. They have oikonomia. The advocates, and this really fits into tomorrow night's program, I pray, but I'm covering it here. The advocates of the so-called Textus Receptus usually do not realize that the King James translators sometimes departed from the majority text, and therefore they themselves did not consider the majority text to be an absolute authority. If they had considered it to be an absolute authority, they would have never departed from it. Now, another thing that's always um, confused. The Textus Receptus should not be confused with the majority text. And it's even confused by mainstream scholars. The Textus Receptus is properly only an edited version of some of the manuscripts of the majority text. The, tech, the words textus receptus did not appear until Elzevir, the Dutch printer, printed his own Greek New Testament. I believe it was 1632. It may have been 1633. 20-something years after the King James, he used the term textus receptus as an advertisement for his edition of the Greek, which is not necessarily 100% with the majority text. So... There's a lot of confusion in manuscripts, 
and there is a that there were in the 1600s Christian scholars who were textus receptus only, <laughs> even if the King James version wasn't exactly translated from the Textus Receptus. It was translated from the similar manuscript of Stephanus with other manuscripts included. So we see how um, complicated the issue is when you want to insist that we follow a particular manuscript and abide by that alone. You're always going to run into problems. So here we encounter the Greek word, oikonomia, once again. And once again, our view of the scriptures has the, and, and the purpose of the gospel governs the manner in which we translated the word. Paul had a stewardship, but that stewardship was the management of the household of Yahweh, which was the family of the faith, as he called them in Galatians chapter 6, and which are the children of Israel and Judah being reconciled to God in Christ as it was prophesied in places such as Jeremiah chapter 33, which we have just cited. We have already quoted Isaiah 29.10, where Yahweh said, in not so many words, that the children of Israel would be blind as a result of their punishment. And he said that he said there that he has poured out upon them the spirit of deep sleep and has closed their eyes. And the prophets and their rulers, the seers, he has also covered. We have already cited Isaiah 43, 19, where Yahweh said, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah chapter 29 contains many of the same warnings concerning Israel as chapters 41 through 43. Here we shall also reference Isaiah 29 verses 13 and 14 in regard to the same mystery of which Paul speaks. And the prophet writes concerning Israel and he says, Wherefore Yahweh said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart from, far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, therefore behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. The wisdom of the wise men has perished, and they scoff at the gospel of the reconciliation of true Israel to Yahweh their God. The understanding of prudent men is hid, and it is a struggle indeed to reach our people with this message of the true gospel of Christ. We would encourage all Christians to read the whole of Isaiah, as well as the other prophets, in this historical context, because covenant theology is the profession and acceptance of the entire Word of God without corrupting the meanings of plain words like seed. Abraham 
wasn't allowed to substitute for the seed from his loins by making Eleazar his heir. The church, sure as hell, won't be allowed to do what Abraham was prohibited from doing. Verse 10. In order that the exceedingly intricate wisdom of Yahweh would now become known to the realms and to the authorities in heavenly places through the assembly. The heavenly places that Paul speaks of here are the seats of government and the institutions of nations. Today, colleges and universities pretend to teach Christians. However, it should be the other way around. At one time, Christianity prevailed in Europe, and it was the other way around. Now, for several centuries, Judaism has dominated European thought, and we are led to worship the gods of secularism. But soon, it will be the other way around once again. Christians should be teaching colleges and universities. The common people of the assemblies of Yahweh God, they are the revealers of truth, and not the Jews or the professional priesthoods, who are truly the merchants of Babylon. Paul concludes by stating that all of this is in accordance with the purpose of the ages, which he has done in Yahshua Christ our Prince saying purpose of the ages. Paul affirms that the purpose of Joshua Christ in the New Testament is the same purpose which Yahweh God had announced through the prophets in the Old Testament. It is also the purpose which he had before the foundation of the world, as Paul said in chapter 1 of this epistle, having that same purpose from the beginning. Those who wish To understand it, must turn to the prophets of the Old Testament where it was expressed. For that reason, as Paul says at the end of chapter 2 of this epistle, the body of Christ is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In that manner, it can only consist of the descendants of the Old Testament Israelites, because the promises of God found in the prophets only concern them and nobody else. And Paul says, with whom we have free spokenness and access in confidence through his faith. And this Greek word, parasia, is in a good sense free spokenness, openness, frankness, and, in a bad sense, license of tongue, according to Liddell and Scott. In the Gospel, the word appears frequently in John, such as in John chapter 7, where it says of those who observed the ministry of Christ, Howbeit, no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews, and those words spoke openly come from the same word, parasia, free spokenness, as we translate it. 
Well, the King James Version has plainness of speech, where Paul used the word in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. That does not relate the full meaning of the word in today's language. And usually that meaning is further obfuscated in the translations of the epistles in the King James Version, where it is often rendered only as boldness or confidence. The word primarily means freedom or openness of speech, which all Christians may expect to have in Christ. However, Paul did use the word parousia several times in his epistle to the Hebrews in contexts where it may be translated simply as liberty. To elucidate what Paul seems to have meant by this free spokenness to which he refers here, we shall quote from the Christogenian New Testament version of 1 John chapter 2, verses 27 through 29, where John also used the word parousia. And the anointing which you have received from him, meaning from Christ, speaking to at least some of the children of Israel, it abides in you, and you have no need that one should teach you. But as his anointing teaches us concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, then just as he has taught you, you abide in him. And now, children, you abide in him, that if he should appear, we would have free spokenness and would not be dishonored by him at his presence. If you know that he is righteous, you also know that each who is practicing righteousness has been born from of him. Practicing righteousness means upholding the law of God. As Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Therefore, Christians should speak of such things freely before men. As we may read the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where he spoke of his defense of Christianity before the Emperor Nero, and he said, For I know that this for me will result in preservation through your supplication and the additional fortune of the Spirit of Yahshua Christ in accordance with my eager hope and expectation, seeing that in nothing shall I be ashamed but with all free-spokenness, that same word, parousia, as always, even now Christ shall be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So from these passages, we may deduce that Christians should speak freely of Christ before men, meaning that they propagate a Christian society and a Christian law and obedience to God. Not simply, oh, Jesus loves you. There's a lot more to it than that. And doing so, Christians also have the hope of speaking freely before God in life or death. Paul had written those words in Philippians not long after he wrote this epistle to the Ephesians. The passage in Philippians was written after his first defense of Christianity in Rome. And this epistle to the Ephesians was written while he was still anticipating 
that appearance. In this context, the following words are to be understood. On which account, I beg for myself not to falter in my afflictions on behalf of you, which is your honor. And the Greek verb, ahidumahi, is a first-person medium form of the verb ahidio. And Liddell and Scott explain that with such a use, the verb means in this medium form to ask for oneself. The medium voice is typically used when the subject of the action is also the recipient of the action. And the meaning is, I beg for myself, because here there is no other recipient of the action. And we know that the King James has a word, you, in the text, but there is no word for you in the text, in the reading of this phrase, in any of the Greek manuscripts, and the reading of this phrase in the King James Version is therefore impossible. Furthermore, the second verb, egkakin. Egkakin is an infinitive form of a verb, and it is to faint or to falter. Infinitives having no number, it cannot be a second-person verb as it is rendered here in the King James Version. The King James Version, totally, the translators totally misunderstood what Paul was saying here. Furthermore, I'm sorry, Paul is not asking his readers not to falter. Rather, Paul is telling his readers that he prays that he himself may not falter in the mission to which he has been assigned on their behalf. Paul knows that he is about to defend his faith before the emperor, and he hopes that his affliction on behalf of all Christians is for the honor of those Christians. That's what he's saying here. Paul had, and we'll give some historical background as to the results of this, Paul had little chance against great adversaries. Nero seems to have hated Christians already, as did many Romans. The reason for the hatred of Christians were, according to Tertullian and other early writers, that the Jews had spread many abominable rumors about them as propaganda to turn the Romans against them. This was the same pattern of lies that the Jews deployed against Germany in the two great wars of the 20th century. They were of their father, the devil. From the closing verses of the book of Acts, as well as from the content of his epistles, it is evident that Paul of Tarsus was executed by Nero before the great fire that destroyed most of Rome in the summer of 64 AD. Nero himself was blamed for the fire, and the historian Tacitus informs us in Book 15 of the Annals of Rome that, consequently, 
to get rid of the report, meaning the report that Nero spread the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition. Thus, checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Tertullian and other early Christian apologists explain the Jewish hand behind this slander of Christians. The Jews were able to defame Christians in Rome to an even greater extent than they had more recently defamed Nazis in Britain and America. Paul continues, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, from whom the whole family in the heavens and upon earth is named. And here in verse 15, the King James Version actually did something well. The phrase, Passa Patria, is correctly the whole family, and it is not, as some other versions have it, such as the New American Standard Bible, it is not every family. The word patria here is singular, and the word pas is also singular, and the word pas is all when used of many, but when it's used of only one, it is the whole, according to the Dell and Scott. Other interpreters have every family here. If it said every family, both words would have to be plural. But in Paul's Greek, in all the copies, they are both singular. Paul may easily have written a plural, but that certainly would not agree with Scripture or with Paul's other statements. And Paul's statement here in affirms our interpretation of the word oikonomia as the management of a family where it appears in two passages earlier in this, in, in this chapter. Here we see that it is indeed a family with which Paul is concerned. That family can only be the children of Israel, the Israelites of the Old Testament prophets, whom Paul also appeals to in this very chapter. This is the only family which Yahweh God has admitted to having known in Amos chapter 3, where he says, Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is the same family of the faith to which Paul had referred in Galatians chapter 6. This whole family 
is the same whole family of Amos 3.2. And Paul continues in verse 16, in order that he would give to you in accordance with the riches of his honor, the ability to be strengthened through his spirit in the inner man, to administer the anointed through the faith in your hearts, being planted and founded in love. This psalm, verse 17, seems to be a little problematical. The word katoite, Kat oikesahi is to administer here. It's an infinitive form of kat oikeo, which means to dwell in as a kat or a settler, to colonize, to settle in, generally to inhabit it. In a passive form of a state, it is to be administered or to be governed. We have interpreted it as administered for two reasons. First, because the noun, Christos, is in the accusative case. It must be the object of the verb and not the subject of the verb as it appears in the King James Version. Secondly, because the subject of Paul's discourse remains the whole family, and evidently it is the family which needs to be settled, or the family which needs to be administered. It's not Christ who needs to be administered. We may imagine, or may want to imagine, that the intended root verb may have been katoikizo. Katoikizo means to remove to a place, to plant, to settle, or to establish, according to Liddell and Scott. And therefore, we would better read the verse to establish the anointed. The verb katoikizo appears in one other place in the New Testament, in James chapter 4, verse 5. And evidently, Strong, James Strong in his concordance, and many of those who follow, misidentify that word with katoikeo, or they purposely neglect any distinction between the two verbs. However, Liddell and Scott, Joseph Thayer, um, Moulton Denton in their concordance to the Greek Testament, and other grammarians do indeed recognize a distinction between these two verbs. We wanted to read it from katoikizo and write to establish the anointed through the faith in your hearts. But the lexicons that we chose to follow for our translation prohibited us from doing that. Verse 18, that you are quite able to comprehend along with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of the anointed being beyond knowledge in order that you would be filled with all the fullness of Yahweh. Yahweh expressed his love for the whole family of the Old Testament Israelites in the prophets. Two examples are found in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and Isaiah chapter 43. From Deuteronomy 33, from verse 1, 
And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, Yahweh came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yeah, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet. Every one shall receive of thy words. And then from Isaiah chapter 43, we may read, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Right from Isaiah chapter 43, we see that Egyptians, Ethiopians, and Sabians are certainly not candidates for Christianity. Since thou, speaking to Israel, since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Nobody else is a candidate for Christianity unless you're one of these people whom Yahweh God loved. Fear not, I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, speaking exclusively to the children of Israel and giving up everyone else. Since, according to Paul himself, the body of Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, these prophets, the seed being gathered in Christ, must be the legitimate offspring of these same Old Testament Israelites whom Yahweh has loved. Jeremiah wrote long after most of Israel had been sent off into captivity, and in the very chapter where we see the promise of a new covenant for Israel and Judah in Jeremiah chapter 31, we also read this, At the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people who were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Yahweh has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee, meaning Israel, with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrays, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. The people who found grace in the wilderness are the survivors of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities who did not return to Palestine. Yahweh God loves the Old Testament Israelites, the family of the faith, with an everlasting love. And Paul concludes, But to he who is able, above all, to do beyond measure whatever we may ask or think, 
according to the ability which is operating in us. To him is the honor in the assembly and in Christ Yahshua for all generations, for eternity, truly and fittingly. The Apostle John, in chapter 5 of his first epistle, uses that Greek word for free-spokenness, paratia, and says, and this is the free-spokenness which we have before him, that whatever we may ask, in accordance with his will, he hears us. So whatever we may ask or think may be given to us as long as we first conform our minds to Christ. Thank you for listening. That is our presentation of Ephesians chapter 3. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.